Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I'm happy to be with you today to discuss some more interesting information around multifamily real estate investing. Today, we're going to go through some fast facts, not in any particular order, not oriented towards any one element of multifamily real estate investing, just some interesting material that I think you'll find valuable. If you've been a longtime listener to multifamily real estate investing presented by Mara Poling, then you're going to be familiar with some, but not all of this information. So please listen. I think you'll find it valuable. And if you're brand new to our weekly podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss out on any new content that uh, comes our way. And please visit the website, the Learning Center at marapoling.com. Got a lot of great material for you, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And you can always shoot me an email if you have any questions, pat at marapoling.com. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, we're going to start with a softball here. Three out of every four. Uh, this is the rate at which 20-year-olds choose to rent. Now, that's 20-year-olds, so 20 through 29. And these are 20-year-olds that live on their own, independent, right? So this is that have their own household. Three out of every four rent. Uh, that's not a surprise, I think, to um, to most of us, right? Almost half, 46.3%, is the percentage of 30 to 44-year-olds who choose to rent. That's a surprising number. That's an increase over what it typically is for a variety of reasons. We're talking now about folks that are no longer young adults. These are regular old adults. Many of you out there may be in that 30 to 44-year-old cohort. Uh, they are uh, firmly in life, right? Uh, employed for some period of time, uh, out of school if they uh, went to college. They're also potentially burdened with student loan debt uh, or incomes that simply haven't kept pace with even the modest amount of inflation that we've had. Therefore, they end up choosing to rent as opposed to own. Maybe they decide they want to be a little more mobile. Maybe they like the urban environment and they decide they're going to have a family. Uh, all sorts of things can impact that. But that's a big part of the economy that's essentially made a decision that they're going to uh, rent. And 46.3% is absolutely higher than our, uh, our rental average across the uh, whole population. All right, here's another interesting one. $1,446 and $567. So $1,446 a month is the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment in the state of California. And if you trot on up to the Northern Plains, to the beautiful state of South Dakota, you can get a one-bedroom apartment on average in South Dakota for $567. Now, I think that's an interesting fact. It also really doesn't have anything to do with real estate investing. Uh, all things equal, and they're not, but let's just say all things are equal between two markets, one that has a $1,446 average rent and another that has a $567 average rent. As an investor, 
we really kind of don't care about that, um, right? What we care about is the amount of operating income that rent can generate. And if they both generated the same amount of operating income, and there was the same demand for them from an investment standpoint, i.e. cap rates were the same, then a $10 million investment in California is gonna perform exactly the same as a $10 million investment in South Dakota. So it's interesting that South Dakota has lower rents and lots of states had lower rents. California was uh, the highest with the exception of the District of Columbia. Uh, so out of all the states, California was the highest. That's why we picked it for that example. Uh, but it really wouldn't matter. Now, there clearly are differences, though, between South Dakota and California. Cap rates in California, if they're not the lowest in the country, they're among the lowest in the country, absolutely. Uh, so that 1446 is going to throw off uh, some amount of net operating income, as does the 567. But there's more people trying to buy that California dollar of net operating income. Therefore, it's going to cost more. So you're not going to make a $10 million investment in South Dakota and then make the same $10 million in California. You might have to invest 12 or 14 or $15 million in California to get the same a dollar return, and obviously you're going to get a lower percentage return from that standpoint. But those are some interesting numbers just to uh, keep an eye on. 16,436,700. This is the number of healthcare workers in the United States. Uh, as many of you know, if you, again, if you've listened for uh, a while, we really like the healthcare sector. When we're looking at submarkets after we've made a decision on a market and we're looking at an asset in a submarket, part of our analysis is to look at the employment sectors that support that particular asset. We like healthcare. Now, there's probably some kind of healthcare in any submarket, right? So we're not talking about uh, a clinic or some doctor's offices. You're going to see those almost anywhere. And that's, that's great. Obviously, those jobs are included in this 16 million plus. Uh, health, U.S. healthcare workers. What we're talking about is um, hospitals, uh, large medical uh, centers. Uh, we have an asset we purchased earlier this year in the beautiful city of San Antonio, uh, the River City, and uh, and that asset is right in the medical district. Uh, nine hospitals, thirty thousand healthcare workers. Fantastic submarket to um, to be in. So we really like U.S. healthcare workers. Here's one of the reasons why we like U.S. healthcare workers. Zero. Not once since 1990 has employment in the healthcare sector across the nation decreased. And if you look at the line, and by the way, we get a lot of this information from uh, the Fed, uh, the Department of Commerce. Uh, there's some industry data that we'll draw from, but for the most part, we're using government uh, generated uh, independent third-party data uh, makes us feel more confident when we um, when we look at it. If you go back and you run the chart, and, uh, and you can do this at the um, uh, one of the uh, Fed databases, we'll be happy to share with you. Uh, if you'd like, again, you can shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com, and I'd be happy to share some of that with you. Uh, not once since 1990 has there been a decrease. If you actually look at the graph, it's kind of a silly graph. I must confess, when we pulled this up the other day, when we were prepping some of this material, said, okay, try some different time frames that, that it just looks like a, literally a straight line going from the lower left to the upper right of this graph. And it's 
essentially just a straight line. And we zoomed into one year and we zoomed out to the maximum number of years. And the line moved ever so slightly. It didn't dip at any point in time. Uh, and it's not going to because of the growth we're having in uh, the retirement of baby boomers uh, and the longevity that uh, our great healthcare system is providing. We can argue about how much healthcare costs and how it should be provided and all the rest of it, uh, but there's absolutely no doubt that healthcare will continue to be an extremely song, strong sector uh, from an employment uh, standpoint. Uh, okay, let's see, 6,930,000 renter households. That is the number of renter households that were created from the decrease in US home ownership from its peak of 69.2% following the Great Recession of 2008. So 6,930,000 renter households. That actually contributes to another of our fast facts. And that is, let me find it up here, uh, zero, the number of net new homeowners created between 2006 and 2016. So for 10 years in the United States, we created no new homeowners. That doesn't mean somebody didn't get to buy a home for the first time. Obviously people did, but there were people that stopped owning homes, right? So the net number of homeowners during that 10 year span did not move, even though the number of households grew by millions. Why? And it's, it's because as new households came in and they bought homes, we had homeowners that stopped being homeowners, right? Again, 6,930,000 of them moved from being homeowners to renters. Uh, and so we had no new homeownership growth during that time frame. All of the growth in households went into the rental market. So, uh, boy, that's an awful lot about demand um, and uh, and so on. Uh, let's see, we've got a, a supply number here that's, uh, I think, an interesting one to look at. Uh, almost 100,000, maybe more. Not quite sure this exact number because it's not tracked real well. And that is the number of existing rental units removed from supply each year. So we hear a lot about new construction and the numbers that we're building every year and demand and so on and how demand is putting pressure on the marketplace and supply is very limited and it's hard to build. And if you build, you have to build class A and all those things. Again, we've had those conversations. It's often not discussed the fact that there are units taken out of service every year. We think the number's around 100,000 and that's extremely conservative. You could make it the argument that it's a couple hundred thousand given the fact that we're talking well north of 40 million uh, rental units in the United States. Uh, now that's total units, right? 40 million plus. So that would include not just 100, 200, 300 unit properties like Mara Poling uh, owns and operates, but it would also include a 40 plex and a duplex and all sorts of other numbers that fit in there. And you can imagine how a lot of those will move in and out of the inventory. Some of the reasons they move out of the inventory isn't because they're taken out of service, it's because they're renovated, right? So uh, we'll go in and uh, we don't do this work in particular because it's a little more risky than, uh, than the kind of investments we'll focus on, but you absolutely can invest in projects where 
a sponsor will go in and purchase an existing asset. Maybe it's a, uh, a 200 unit higher density C-ish, almost D kind of property, and they'll simply scrape it, right? So you, you tear it down, clear the lot, and you rebuild. And what you rebuild is gonna be an A, because that's what can be built uh, these days with the uh, way the economics are, cost of construction and such. So you build an A, well, you're not gonna build 200 units, right? You're gonna build 150 units or 100 units. So net-net when you're done, while it looks like we just added 100 units to supply, we actually took 100 units out of supply. Um, so that's a number that hard to hard to track, but it's absolutely out there. Let's see, let's find another uh, interesting one uh, here. Oh, I always like this one, 76,754,710. As best as the census department knows, that number, so 76, almost 77 million, is the size of the population 55 and older. 55 would be roughly the youngest baby boomers, 55, 56. So those are folks born in the early 60s, 63 or thereabouts, uh, and older, which takes you back through everybody born in the 50s and into the 40s and obviously uh, farther than that, right? So we're also talking about some pre-baby boomers that uh, thank you, you guys are still around. Um, so 76, almost 77 million uh, folks, 55 and older. And one of the reasons that that's in, uh, an important number to, uh, to keep track of is 21.6%. That's the percentage of 65 year olds and older who choose to rent versus own. And that number is historically pretty consistent. It's around 20%, it's a little higher there, 21.6. Uh, but that's a pretty consistent number. But that population, the 76, almost 77 million, that number is bigger than it typically is because we have that big bulge from the baby boomers. So uh, uh, an interesting one. So a little on the return side now, I've got a couple more for you. And um, let's see, 15.49% uh, return. 15.49% uh, as a return. That sounds phenomenal, uh, doesn't it? And if if I was able to tell you that I could give you that and write it down on a piece of paper that this is what you're gonna get, you give me your money and I'll send you this much and I'll send you a check every month, I'd probably have a line of folks out the door. And if it was September of 1981, you could get that deal because that's what the AAA corporate bond rate was in September of 1981. That's the peak, uh, at least as far as the data that we have access to, 15.49%. Now, any of you that have been around for a while or if not have access to the internet so you can look at historically, uh, September of 1981 was not exactly a wonderful time uh, for the U.S. economy. Inflation was extraordinarily high, hence the 15.5% uh, bond rate here. And um, uh, we were coming out of a pretty rough uh, period of, of time and we're getting ready to go through a recession. Uh, we had all sorts of fun stuff that was happening. So 15.49%. I don't know that I long for those days. Um, yeah, that was a big return on bonds, but there was a reason you had to pay that much uh, because of all the instability that was going on. 2.98%, that is the AAA corporate bond rate today. Checked it just this uh, last week before we uh, put our material together for today's session. So 2.98%, 3% roughly. For the 
corporate bond rate, right? And corporate bonds are going to run a little better than government bonds. So two to three percent is where the bonds are right now. One of the things you might remember is some sessions we've had where we've talked about how multifamily uh, in particular, but commercial real estate in general performs relative to bonds. And while on a stability basis, we're in that same range, a little more stable than corporate bonds, uh, almost right at the stability of government bonds, the cash returns, right? Our typical cash returns are in that 8% range compared with two to 3% here. So you're gonna get a much better cash return out of a commercial real estate investment, not, not to mention the tax advantages, but just the raw cash return uh, for very similar stability. Um, not 15.49%, right? So we're not, not jumping in the time machine to go back and, uh, uh, and do that one. Um, so let's see, let's see if we have, uh, have a couple more numbers of interest that, uh, that, we, might, uh, that we might share. Uh, here, I, th this one's good. When we, um, when we put this one together, I was actually a little shocked by this. I knew it was going to be a big number. I didn't know it was going to be this big. Okay, 1,691,339 new units. I'll say that one again. 1,691,339 new units. That's the number of new units we would need to build today for us to match the peak build rates of the 70s and 80s. Can you imagine if we built 1.7 million new units in the United States? It, wouldn't that be amazing? Um, and there's, there's data out there that actually supports something in that range from a, from a volume standpoint in terms of demand. Um, we built 335,600 new units in 2018. Uh, a fraction of what the peak rates were back in the 70s and 80s. So when you look back in the 70s and 80s, and just to get your head wrapped around just how much activity there was, how much new supply was coming online, and much of that new supply is what what's fueling um, many of the investments today that take place, the value-add investments of the 70s and 80s and 90s product that's um, that's out there on the market, bringing it to um, bring it up to uh, to today's uh, standards. So uh, really something when you think about that and keep in mind the economy of the 70s and 80s as we just described, very different interest rate environment, uh, completely different kind of uh, stability and instability uh, within the uh, economy, uh, stagflation as it was called. Uh, back in the 70s. So the fact that the industry built almost 1.7 million new units on an adjusted basis uh, back then, really, um, really something, okay? So we're gonna look at, I uh, got one more, uh, actually two more numbers for you. They're connected, so we're not, uh, uh, it's, it's one number in my mind. Uh, 3,806,300. That is the number of workers in the United States that work in the education industry. So this would be uh, teachers and administrators and support staff, uh, uh, district office folks, right? So you think, you think your local school board for your elementary and middle schools and high schools, public and private, uh, junior colleges, 
state universities, state colleges, private universities, all of, all of that entire space, 3.8 million workers in the United States. Again, another space that we really like to have from an employment sector when we're looking at assets. Why? In the last 10 years, that number has grown by 22.8%. And it's grown consistently, right? Even throughout all the different uh, tumult that we've had uh, in the last 10 years or even beyond, when you look at the data, this has been a fairly consistent growth area. Now, again, much like healthcare, there's a lot of discussion in the um, public space about the cost of education, uh, both public, private, higher education, uh, and the like, uh, the quality of the product that we get and so on, and those are great discussions to have. The data absolutely tells a story though, which is, we are growing that space. That industry is growing in part because of our population growth, uh, but also because there is a focus on more education, especially higher education, as our economy changes and becomes a more technology and information oriented technology. And we shift away from jobs that didn't require as much higher education. They were great jobs, unfortunately. Many of those do not exist anymore as they've become automated. Uh, or have um, uh, fallen victim to other uh, forces in the economy. I hope you found all those little tidbits of interest. If any one of those piqued your curiosity, or like I'd like to know more about that, like I said, swing by the Learning Center at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. There's lots of good material there, and uh, you can always shoot me an email or on the website, the little phone you can click on and you can set up some time on my schedule. I'd be more than happy to chat with you about uh, whatever might be of interest in terms of the material we share today. Uh, or if you have questions about, uh, about investing, uh, we're always interested obviously in working and talking to folks who would uh, have interest in working with us. Uh, and if you've got your own uh, portfolio of multifamily assets, we'd be happy to chat with you as well and uh, see if there's anything we can do to lend a hand. Please join us again next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. <music>